Well, good morning, Abundant Life. Isn't it great just to be here together? Yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe you kind of rushed to get here. Maybe you still trying to work out daylight savings time. It's like, man, time is just moving by quickly. But, but you're here because God ordained you to be there, to be here together in this house, worshiping, praising, fellowshipping, and now we'll hear his word. And so let's just, uh, let's offer him our collective prayers that he would speak to each one of us. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you that we take no day for granted and we love each and every moment that we can be with you. Lord, you know where each of us is this morning as we gather together. You know the challenges, you know the heartaches, you know the joys, you know the hopes, you know the fears, you know the triumphs, and you know our calling. Lord, use this word that you would speak through me to draw us closer to you. You are Lord, our loving Savior, our risen champion, one who will see us through this life into eternity. So help us to be faithful now and always. Thank you, Jesus. In your name, amen. Amen. So if you were here last week, we're in off vacationing, celebrating 4th of July overabundantly, you got to hear the first part of a two-part series. So this is the second part. So the last week, we're, it, we started in Colossians 1. We're going to be in Colossians 1 again today. And we're really talking about what does it mean to hear Jesus' voice above all the others in this world? You know, because you, you can't open up your, your homepage, you can't look at a newspaper, you can't talk to folks in your neighborhood without getting some aspect of the world's input about necessarily what Christians ought to be doing, what they ought to be thinking, what the church should be believing, what it should stop doing, any number of voices that are coming at you as believers in Christ and coming as a church, as a fellowship, telling you what is good for your life. That happens at work, it happens in our extended families, and it was happening to the Colossian church. And they were finding themselves squeezed into the world's way of thinking. They started off well, Epaphras was a missionary, he, he presented the gospel, they greeted the gospel of Jesus as Lord and Savior with great fervor, and they were doing pretty well. Paul commends them for the fact that they were growing in faith in Jesus Christ, and they were increasing in love for one another. Those are two great hallmarks, by the way, for what it means to be a, a healthy and good church. Are we growing in faith in Jesus Christ? And are we reaching out in love towards other people? If you can make sure that that's kind of where your focus, where we're focused as Abundant Life, we'll be in good stead in the days and months and years ahead. So Paul is commending them for that, but at the same time, he's conscious that some of their old thought patterns, some of the old habits, some of the environment that they were in, they were kind of in a pretty lax culture that said you could do whatever you wanted to do with your body. You could live pretty much however you wanted to live and nobody was gonna make too much of a fuss. That spiritually speaking, there were any number of spiritual practices that were available to you and you could choose which one you liked. They had multiple gods in those days that or people, you know, divinities that they claimed would help you, special gods for special needs. And it's like that in much of the world today, isn't it? So this is the environment that the Colossian church found themselves in. And Paul, being the loving pastor that he is, is writing to them to make sure that above all those other voices, they're hearing the voice of Jesus Christ. And so he looked at the first 14 verses 
in Colossians 1, and we discovered that as he commends them for their faith, at the same time he's exhorting them and encouraging them to keep the hope of heaven alive in their heart. And we explored what that hope meant, to, because he says you're, you're increasing in love for, for others and in your faith in Christ. Why? Because you're motivated by the hope that awaits you. You're motivated by the fact that you will be eventually in heaven with God that his presence is something that you will experience in all its fullness, whereas right now we can't, we can't even really begin to appreciate in places what it means to, to know God's presence, not anywhere near like we will when we're with him in heaven. And he said, the hope is also that you will be perfected. Finally, that perfection that you strive for, that perfection that your spouse wants you to strive for, that people that are on your row want you to get victory over, of being more and more like Christ and less and less like your old self, that will be realized in heaven. And then the final part of the hope that we looked at last week is that that aspect of people that you love and care about in this life, who you were actively praying for today and in the days ahead, and you've been praying for for years, that they would know Jesus Christ we're praying that they would greet you in heaven in answer to your prayer, in answer to your witness, in answer to the way that you've been using the resources, your time, your talent, and treasure to advance the gospel. We want people that we care about to be with us in heaven. We want people for really taking seriously God's call uh, in terms of what's called the Great Commission to go into all the world. We want to be greeted by people in heaven that we will never meet in this lifetime. But we gave to a certain missionary group or a person that was working in some tough places, and through that effort, they were able to um, reach people for the gospel by God's grace. So that's the hope. That's the motivator. That was what we talked about last week. That was through verse 14. And this week, we get to Paul saying, I want you to hear Jesus' voice above all others, and I'm going to present Jesus Christ to you smack full on in your face, exalted, lifted up, as high as you can even think, and then even higher than that. And so he starts with verse 15, going to verse 20, specifically about Christ. We'll continue to read verses 21 through 23, because that calls for a reaction too. So if you've got your scripture, you can turn with me to Colossians 1. We're going to pick it up, at, as I said, in verse 15. We're going to go all the way to 23. I'm reading out of the New International Version. That should be hopefully up on the screen. Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross." Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight 
without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. This is, I mean, I hope you're already beginning to see the power of what of what Paul is saying to the Colossians, that he immediately begins with, the Son is the image of the invisible God. He doesn't want there to be any mistake, any doubt, any confusion, any kind of waffling like, oh, who's Jesus? Uh, what, what, what are you trying to say? Is he some big? He wants to be crystal clear about who Jesus is because this was a culture that was caught up in, in its own version of spirituality. The culture, the spiritual culture of that day had sort of a hierarchy of divine persons. It's kind of like a military. You had a general and a colonel and and majors and captains and lieutenants and foot soldiers. It was kind of like those were the divine people sort of arranged in that rank and order. And Paul is saying immediately that Christ transcends all of that, that he is the image of the invisible God. And that's so important because God has made every person, we are all made, says the scripture, in his image. And all of us being made in his image have an innate desire to know God, to to know our true north as a compass heading, to know that we are created to be in fellowship with God. The trouble is we don't know who he is. Not we Christians, not those the Colossians, but this world. This world is spiritual. We know that because there's, what, some 7 billion people on the planet, about 84% of whom have some kind of religious connection, affiliation. Those who keep track of these things say there's 2.2 billion people on the planet that claim to be Christians. There's 1.8 billion people on this planet that claim to be Muslims. There's a little over a billion people that practice a Hindu faith. There's almost a billion that have kind of a Chinese folk orientation for their spiritual practice. Buddhists are almost half a billion. That's most of the people on this earth have some kind of spiritual focus and spiritual practice. The question is not are we made spiritually because we are. The question is who is the object of that practice? What, who is God really? And then can I know him? What is he like? Some of you this morning may be asking that question because, frankly, the God that you grew up with, the God that you were introduced to, is not necessarily a God that you want to know because he was presented as harsh, as unfeeling, as uncaring, as remote, as judgmental, as dictatorial. All those things, like, who wants to be connected to a God like that? And so you find yourself distant. You find yourself, that's not the God I want. But guess what? Here's the good news. That's not the God that's being presented in Scripture either. So Paul is answering the first question that that the Colossians were wrestling with. Who is God? And he says, you don't have to look any further than Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the image, the actual image, the icon, the spitting image of God the Father. Wow. Really? Yes, He is the image of God the Father. And it says that in other places. John himself in his gospel says this. John chapter 1, verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, that's Jesus, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. Jesus has made him known. 
do you want to know God? Do you want to know who he is? You just have to look to Jesus. That's why the Gospels are so important. How do we know who this God is? This invisible, this remote God, this God that's been interpreted all kinds of different ways, we know him just by looking at Jesus Christ, by reading about what Christ did, by how he loved people, by how he sacrificed, by how he gave himself for them in so many ways, by how he healed, by how he had mercy, by how he had compassion. Beginning to get the idea of who this invisible God is. And by the way, this isn't just a gloss that the, the gospel writers and, the, and Paul put on somebody named Jesus, because one of the ways our world tries to come at us is to say, you know, Jesus is a myth. Yeah, maybe there's a guy named Jesus, but you know what? He died a terrible death, and that was the end of it. No, Jesus had this understanding of himself. He said to Philip, you guys might recall in John chapter 14, Philip is saying to the Lord, after walking with him for how many years, two plus years, he says, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Philip, I like Philip. He's a nice, pious guy. And Jesus said, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? What a claim. Jesus himself knew that if they, people were going to look at him, they would see the invisible God. And he says later on in John, I do nothing on my own. I only do what the Father shows me to do. I'm not just trying to charm you with my sparkling personality. I'm not trying to gather a bunch of people to me with miracles and signs and wonders and raising people from the dead, all of which he did. I'm not trying to be a populist hero by taking on the Roman rulers and the Pharisees. If you read the Gospels, you know that he was a popular guy, in large part for these very reasons. But he said, I don't want any of that to accrue to me. All of that is out of my calling to represent to you, to live for you and show you who this invisible God is. That's like, thank you, Lord. How, <laughs> when you hear that, how do you receive it? You've got to say thank you, Lord. You've got, you just want to break out in a doxology, a praise. Like, Lord, thank you that you loved us so much, that you emptied yourself, that we would know only who God the Father is, that you would show us who this invisible God is, and you would be so faithful and so consistent all the days of your life on earth that there's no mistaking who God is, what he wants for us, and how much he loves us. Man, that's got to get us just praising. Get your praise on this like. Yeah, be exalted. We sang that earlier today. Be exalted, God. Be exalted in my life because of who you are. And this is who Jesus has revealed God to be because he himself, as we just read, is God. So how did Philip know who God was? By seeing Jesus. How do people that you know know who God is? Do they get to see Jesus? No, he's at the right hand of the Father now. He is not physically among us. So how are they going to know who the invisible God is? Us. Bingo. Great. Full marks to this row. What's wrong with you guys? Anyway, you know, this is what, this is what Jesus has said to us, that you are now the representatives. Here's how Paul describes it in Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, meaning those who have been predestined to be part of his church, all of us who believe in him, for those God foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son. This is the high calling that is on every person's life who knows him. 
God, Jesus said, I represent the Father to you. I am the image of the invisible God. That is the Lord who's presented. And then the Lord comes to us and says, you are now the image bearers. The, the imago Dei, the image of God. The imago Christi, the image of Christ. If people want to know God, if you want to show them who Jesus is, who God the Father is, you need to be able to say, and this is where it gets a little scary, look at me, look at my life. But how many people... How many of us want to say that? You know, I'm a pastor and I don't really want to say that. You know, true confessions. I mean, I, that's the calling that God has on us. We need to be able to say that. That's what he's put on us. And we need to be faithful in that. We are his witnesses. We are his ambassadors. An ambassador doesn't get to operate the way an ambassador wants. An ambassador gets to operate the way the government, the head of his government, has told him to act. And we are in that same place. We are his witnesses. Are we living like that? Is that your highest aspiration? Let me just stop there, because <clears throat> that might be kind of new news to some of us, that the highest aspiration God has for your life is that you're conformed to the image of his son. Because as kids, we, we, have, we have our aspirations as kids. It starts early, the things that we want. Maybe we think we're going to be a major league ball player, or uh, women's U.S. soccer just won the World Cup, and now you're hearing about all these young girls that want to be just like them. I don't know what you wanted to be when you were a kid. I, my, my first aspiration that I can remember, I wanted to be a garbage man. Now, some of you actually remember that we had garbage men. And these were guys that actually, they hung on the back of a truck, which was really cool. That's part of the reason I like that. And they were hanging on big trucks, which was really cool. And they got to work these levers with big hydraulic lifts to take the garbage and put it into the big bin. I mean, that was great. I love that. And then I realized as I got slightly older that they got up really early, and I didn't like that part. So... Then I wanted to be a fireman because the trucks were cooler, bigger, longer, and, uh, you know. So you have these aspirations. At what point did I want to aspire to know Jesus and then to be like him? That came later in my adult life. But parents and those that are parent figures, if you've got young people in your life, let me just encourage you to encourage them to aspire to know God, that you would present Jesus God as that loving Lord who loves them, who picks them up, who is compassionate, who provides boundaries and love and guidance, and where there's a corrective word that's needed that you provide that also in love. But you're training them up in the way that they should go so that they see who God the Father truly is and that he truly loves them now and always. Teach your kids to aspire to know God. But as adults, we need to put away our own childish aspirations about what I want, what I think is going to be cool, and need to connect with the aspiration that God has for us. And you can do that with whatever your profession is. I'm not saying that everybody needs to leave what they're doing and suddenly go into some kind of vocational ministry or missionary uh, endeavor. You've got plenty of missionary activity right where you're working, right where you're living. I'm just saying you do your profession, whatever the calling is, whatever job you have, out of that sense of wanting to reflect Jesus in your place, in your work, so that people would be able to see you and see Christ. At least be able to say, hey, you're different. You know, let's start with a baby step. What's gotten into you? you you're now talking to me about Jesus, and I see that you're different. You're not hanging out with the same folks. You're not clubbing like you used to do. The things that used to interest you, the things that, frankly, we said made you a lot of fun, you're not doing those. But now you're inviting me to a Bible study or a night of worship, or we're just going on a walk, and we're talking about interesting things, and we're not gossiping. You're just this really different person. But deep down... 
in the heart of those that God is calling is a curiosity and actually a desire to be called out, to be wooed, to be introduced to that God who you know, who loves them just as he, as he loves you with as much sacrifice and compassion and provision as he's given you. He loves those people. So don't give up on them. Keep praying. Know that they are looking at you and that, that you are their gospel. You are the image of that invisible God. That's just in verse 15. Hope your stuff is, uh, you're eating cold food today because we're going to be here for a while. No, I'm just kidding. Verse 16, we get to the place where, where Paul then says, for in him, meaning Jesus, all things were created, all things in heaven, all things on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is lifting Jesus up, this, this man who walked on the earth, exalting him to this sovereign place called the creator of everything that we know. Not only stuff that we see and can taste and feel on this planet, but even things that we don't know. As I said to you earlier, there was that spiritual hierarchy that was in the minds of the average Colossian because that was the culture they're in. And Paul is saying that anything that you think is created, any God, demigod, semigod, all that, Jesus is above all that. He's the creator. You can't create anything. If you remember your basic high school science, you can't create matter, you can change it, but you can't create it and you can't destroy it. You can only change it. Only God is the one who can speak something out of nothing. And he spoke the, word into, the world into being and he spoke all these principalities and he just created them. And Jesus is God and he is a part of that creation. He is an instrument of that creation. You look at the various texts about creation. At times it says God the Father. At times it talks about the Holy Spirit. And now it's talking about Jesus Christ. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is who we understand God to be in all those aspects of God participated and are the creator. So in Christ, <clears throat> all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth. <clears throat> Jesus made that so he made it through him. It speaks to his sovereignty. It speaks to his power. It speaks to his goodness. Do you see this creation as good? Do you just go out? I mean, go see some redwood trees, for example. Go down to Henry Cowell State Park. Look at the redwoods. You just have to marvel how big they are, how much shade they cast, how old they are. The bark is different. It's fire resistant. On your way, you'll stop by... Uh, stop by the ocean. I mean, the ocean is kind of one of those things where I just see the majesty of God, the power of God, the grandeur of God, just wave after wave, how the light plays on it. God's creation is good. And if you're kind of an indoors person and it doesn't do it for you, think about food. I mean, look at the good things that God has provided. Maybe you can like, Lord, when I see that triple chocolate layer cake, I'm like, you are a good God. But maybe you don't have the freedom on the triple chocolate layer cake. Maybe you're like, no, I can't do that. So I commend quinoa to you or kale chips or what? God's creation in all its form is good and we need to rejoice in it. So I, to get in touch and to remind ourselves that Jesus is the creator, get out amongst his creation. Praise God for it. There's plenty of Psalms that speak to how worthy the Lord is for praise just because of what he's made. It's Psalm, 19, excuse me, Psalm 19, Psalm 104. I don't have time to read them, but just note them down and read them when you have time. So creation was made through him. His power testifies to his sovereignty. Marvel at it. Just drink that in. 
but creation is made for him. It says all things have been created through him and made for him. God made creation for his purposes. He did not consult you or me. He didn't include us. Here's the interesting thing. You know, it's not necessarily a revelation, but we need to take it on board. We are part of the creation. Now, I only point that out because oftentimes we think we're part of the creator and we get it wrong. Or we think the creator's actually been made for us the creation. We get that wrong. And we say, Lord, when we think that way, we, we got it backwards and we say, Lord, thank you that you're in my life and I want these things. Here's my list. You know, it's like Christmas. Sometimes your kids, your kids will give you, or your, your nieces and nephews, they give you a list for Christmas. Here's what I'd like. They're not bashful about it, are they? Man, I want, it's like, this is two sides. This thing's stapled together. How many things do you want on this, kid? My brother one time for Christmas, he put a big list together, gave it to my parents at the back of the list. Actually, I think it was on the front. The first thing he wanted was a treehouse. Like, you want a treehouse? We didn't even have a tree. We lived in the city. They just saw this treehouse. Like, that's what I want. You know, there are times we were, are like that in our lives. We see God is just a dispenser of gifts. And that we want what we want. But that's how a kid thinks. A kid is the center of their universe. Me, mine, I want. But that, you know, kids grow up. We should be growing up. So God isn't somebody, Jesus isn't somebody that just exists to serve what you want. And the reason I say that is when you don't get what you think you want, then what happens? You start throwing off on the Lord. Stop believing in him. Stop thinking that he's good. Stop thinking that he cares. Stop thinking that he has power. All those things diminish this God that Paul is putting in front of the Colossians. All those things are absolutely untrue about who Jesus Christ is. And all those things put our relationship with him in jeopardy if we persist in them, all because we perceive in our own limited thinking, in our own sinful ways, that somehow he didn't come through for us. This is what Isaiah says in that regard, kind of rebukes the Israelites at one point. He says... Um, He says in in chapter 29 of verse 16, 16, he says, you turn things, Israel, upside down as if the potter were thought to be like the clay. Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, you didn't make me. Can the pot say to the potter, you know nothing. Man, that's ridiculous, right? Thank God, I mean, for the pot to actually say to the potter, you don't know anything. Anybody uh, do ceramics in high school or grade school? You get the potter's wheel or clay. Or nowadays, it's popular if you're dating to take your first date or to do something fun, tactile like ceramics. So, or maybe you just played with Play-Doh as a kid. Play-Doh works too. But if you played with Play-Doh and you were making something, did you ever hear the Play-Doh talk back to you? Like, what are you doing? Like, now, if you're hearing Play-Doh talk to you, you've definitely got an issue. But the point is, the point is, that, you know, it's, the, Isaiah is just creating this ridiculous scenario. What is made doesn't say to the maker, you got it wrong, I don't like what you're doing. And he's saying, we are the pots. Who's the pot in this? It's me, it's you. And who is the potter? It's God who loves us, who designs everything according to his purpose. So this creation is made by him, it is made for him, and not vice versa. So Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He is the creator. 
And now he's the sustainer. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The fact that you can hear me, the fact that I can speak, the fact that we got here, the fact that we're in this building that looks pretty much the same as it was last week, and Lord willing, will look fairly similar next week. All these things are because Jesus himself sustains creation. Every molecule, every atom, every aspect, everything that we can perceive, how we call perception, is sustained by Jesus. That's what this verse says. How great is our Lord that he is the sustainer of all things? How dependent are we on Jesus for everything that happens? Just our ability. We are so dependent. If he just switched himself off, from, it took his sustaining role and switched it off, what would happen? What, we, we, this would all instantly disappear. So he is the sustainer of all those things. He sustains it so well, so thoroughly, that, that there's, there's whole sciences devoted to how much what God has done. Take the, the astronomy, for example. Do you realize, I'm not much of a science guy, so I'll confess I had to look this up, but in one day, to, to take a 24-hour period, this earth is spinning, it spins around one, on its axis one time, it's traveling at 1,040 miles an hour just to go around one day. Do you realize that the earth, as it goes around the sun, goes at 67,000 miles an hour. It takes a year for us to get around the sun one time. But we are traveling at 67,000 miles an hour right now on this earth to go around the sun. And the sun in this whole solar system is moving towards the center of the galaxy at 490,000 miles an hour. I don't know about you, but I'm a little dizzy right now, just kind of looking at that stuff. It's like... Wow, God, and he's sustaining it. He doesn't change. He doesn't, he doesn't mix it up. He doesn't slow us down. He doesn't get us closer to the sun. He keeps everything perfect as he's designed it. So much so that scientists call these natural laws as if somehow God isn't involved in them. Well, you know, newsflash, according to Colossians 1, God, Jesus does all of this and sustains all of this, but he does it so well and so consistently and for such a long time in millennia that we've kind of thought, where is he? He, I guess he's not doing this. No, he is doing it. And Paul, again, presents Christ to the Colossians as being above all of that. So I find the fact that Jesus is the creator, the sustainer, does two things. First, it reassures me I don't know about you, but part of the way that the world squeezes us into its mold is has all kinds of doomsday scenarios. When people are without God, they are without hope. And if you're oftentimes, and when we're without hope, then the fears that are natural that the enemy brings at us can multiply and they can grow. And then they show up in all kinds of you know, weird news articles and even TV shows about how things, how the world will end. Uh, that's one. There's actually a show, the Discovery Channel ran it last year. And they had various... I guess scientists come and talk about various scenarios for how the world could end. Would it be a, a, a volcano, massive eruption? Maybe it's an asteroid strike. Maybe, you know, hitting the planet. Maybe it's a, a monster, um, you know, outbreak of a plague or a disease. Maybe uh, it's a deep freeze. Somebody, they, they showed deep freeze. I'm like, where's the guy with the global warming memo? He didn't get that memo. I don't know how deep freeze had happened, but then they got even weirder and weirder. All that to say... There are times where people without hope 
are going to fill it in with the fears that the enemy presents. But the fact that Jesus created, that he sustains, that encourages me. I don't know, you know, how the Lord will eventually come and bring things to an end. We don't get all that level of detail in the scripture. Nor do I just say, oh, the Lord's got it all in control. Because here's the beauty of part of the call that he has on our life. The things that, that are plagues that are out there that are still ravaging places in this world. So many of the things that are causing death in, in Africa and other parts of the world. These are things that are actually solvable. These are diseases that have been cured. These are ways that they've been cured because God's, God has raised up men and women with a scientific heart and a mind and a passion for breakthroughs in medicine and in healing and to take that to entire nations so that diseases which are preventable are actually prevented. And so I rejoice in that. So when I say that God is in charge, that doesn't mean we get to sit back and go, you run it, God. No, that means that we are listening and we're saying, Lord, what's my role? What do you want me to do? How, how do I fit into your plan for this? When you want me to be conformed in his image, when you're the God of compassion, you're the God of mercy, the, the way I get to do that is I get to be a medical technologist. I get to be a, a bioscientist. I get to find ways that are going to help people overcome these diseases. Praise God for that. I get to, he calls us, he's given us this planet to be what? Ours? No, to be stewards. Lord, help me to be a good steward of your good creation. Help me to understand what wise policies are, to advocate for those to talk through them. Complex issues require complex discussions sometimes. Help me, Lord, to understand how you're causing me to think about this. We want to be thinking about the stewardship that God's given us for the environment and for any number of issues that face us. As somebody said, we want to bring you know, light to that discussion. We, won't, we don't want to bring heat to it. And so that's an advocate. You know, this is a culture that it doesn't want to listen. It just wants to fight. It wants to throw bombs in some way or shape or form. But as children of the light, as those who acknowledge Jesus not only as Lord and Savior, but as creator and sustainer, we need to be faithful to that calling as well. And so he gives you any number of things to be able to contribute to this. And that's reassuring to me that we get to participate in his plan, that this is his creation, and however it's going to change, and if it changes, and however we're going to fight disease, and the things that show that this world is still subject to decay and corruption, he's leading us in that area. But at the same time, when I read this, when I read about the Lord's sovereignty, when I read about his creation, I'm also disturbed I'm also bothered by a few things. And here, here's what bothers me. Because if you see that the Lord owns it all, if you see that he's above everything, if you see that his purposes are good, um, how is it that we are dealing, how do we deal with really hard, difficult news? How do we deal with evil that comes against people in this world? How do we process the fact that brothers and sisters in Egypt and in other places in the Middle East are being rounded up and some are being summarily executed by extremists. How do we deal with the fact that they're being turned out of their churches and some churches are being burned? How do we make sense of that? How do we make sense of the tragedy of, the, of three weeks ago where brothers and sisters in, in Charleston, South Carolina were killed by a man filled, filled with evil and racial hatred? Not only killed, but killed in their church. Not only killed in their church, but in the middle of a Bible study. What level of evil makes sense, or yeah, how do we process that in, in the light of this fact that Jesus is sovereign over all? 
And this has been a question that has been a hard one for believers. But we have to face it. We have to begin to think about how to address it because if we don't, if you don't address it, if you don't help people address it, then you're going to find that that people are in danger of walking away from Jesus. Because if he's not there in the hard things, where is he? Now, he's not just there on the Sunday afternoon, but he's there on the Monday morning. He's not just there when you're celebrating the promotion with your friends, but he's there when you get bad news about a chronic, you know, some kind of stage of cancer. He's there in all places and all times. Where can I go from your presence, says the psalmist. If I go to the heights, you're there. If I go down to the depths of Sheol, thou art still there. The darkness is not dark to thee. There's no place we can go from God's presence. So we have to see the fact, where is God in the midst of all this? And this is where our text takes us from Jesus as creator, Jesus as sustainer, now to Jesus as redeemer, and Jesus as reconciler. So if we read verses 18 and 20, we'll get there. It says in 18, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. He's the head of the body of the church. That means, what is the church? The church is the community of the redeemed people. We are people that have said yes to Christ. Lord, I didn't know who God was. I didn't want to know him. I wanted to live my own life. But you rescued me. You redeemed me by what you did on the cross. You gave your life physically for me. You died on the cross. And you paid that penalty that I owed your heavenly father in full. There's nothing I can do but other than to receive that. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you are the head of this church, this body. This is who we are. We're just redeemed people. We're folks that, that in, in verse 21, when we were reading earlier, it says, um, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of what? Because of your evil behavior. But the Lord reconciled us. The best way to overcome evil is with good. The best way to deal with evil people is, or people that are captivated by evil is to make sure that they get to know the Lord and they can exchange their evil for his goodness. They can take the, the sin nature that's driving them to do things and replace it with his nature. They can walk in the power of his spirit. That's the redeemed community called the church. That's who Christ is the head of. And he now says to us, I want you to be, I am here reconciling all this in the world. Now, Jesus has said, um, you know, we're we're talking about some pretty big examples, but it doesn't have to be just that big. Any difficulties, this world, says Paul, is full of brokenness. The fact that, that we disobeyed God has meant that this world is subject to decay, our own bodies are subject to decay, any number of things. We're all on the path of death. Any living being will surely die. The question is, Will that be a permanent death or just a temporary one? And Jesus is the one who assures us that it's only temporary, that we will, in fact, live with him forever. And so we see in those verses 18 to 20 that he moves from from sustainer to now redeemer, now to reconciler. And we're in this place now, and, and Jesus himself says this in John 16, 33, just to add it. It says, Jesus says to his disciples in 
there. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Here's the point. We live in this age right now between what some scholars call the already and the not yet. The already is what Christ has done for us. The already is that he went to the grave, but he was raised on the third day, and he broke the power of sin and death in our life. That's already happened. The not yet part is that we have not fully realized that. We have yet to fully realize that in our life. The, the, the already is that he has said that, that creation, all creation, including us who know him, will be renewed, that he is creating a new heaven and a new earth. That's what he's declared. The not yet is that we haven't uh, fully realize that. That'll happen when the new Jerusalem comes. That will be the fulfillment. The already is that the power of sin and Satan and the enemy has been defeated in our life, but we have not yet fully realized that, and not all people know that. If you just remember, I was talking earlier about 7 billion people in this world, only 2.2 billion of whom claim to be some kind of Christian. That's a target-rich environment, folks. There's a lot of people that don't yet know Jesus that we can be, and he's calling us to be a part of. People, uh, those that estimate population increases, think by 2050, hopefully within most of our lifetimes, there'll be 11 billion people on the planet. More people to come to know the Lord. More people to come to embody him. More people to come to express who he is. That is the opportunity before us, but we do that as we reach out with love and his reconciliation. We live between the already and the not yet. So what happens when we, have, when we face evil? What happens when evil comes against us? Not necessarily in the extreme forms that I was talking about. Sometimes it just comes in the form of somebody in your family going off against you. I've talked to a couple people in the recent weeks who are in lawsuits with family members or just just hardships and difficulties. I've talked to other people the last few weeks whose rents have gone up 20%, 40%. In this area, it is very tough. It is getting tougher if you're a renter. These are things that come against us. How do we deal with that? We're living in this in-between time between the already and the not yet. And the short answer is we take a leaf out of Paul's book who said in Romans 8, he says, beginning in verse 22, he says, we know that this whole creation is groaning and it's in the pains of childbirth it, at this present time. Not only our creation, but we ourselves, the first fruits of the Spirit, we're groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption of sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For it is in this hope that we were saved. He's talking about the already, but the not yet. But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. Paul's saying, I know it's still hard. I know that it is tough. But we hope because we talked about hope last week, and we wait for it patiently. We receive God's ability to help us wait. Here's what John says in his first letter. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. How do I survive this in-between time? How do I deal with hardships and challenges and evil that might come against me? How do I make sure that I'm encouraging you? How do you make sure that you're encouraging me and one another in this time? We stay close and hanging on to Jesus Christ who is hanging on to us. John, 1 John 5, the, in fact, this is the love for God to keep his commands, and his commands aren't burdensome. For everyone born of God does what? Overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. 
If John were talking to the Colossians, he would be saying, how is it that you guys stay firm? How is it that you're able to hear Jesus' voice above all the others? How is it that you're able to deal with evil that comes against you? How is it that you're able to deal with hardship and challenge? You stay hanging on to Jesus. You stay trusting in him. Now, if your faith is being stretched and you're not sure, I can go on one more time. And some of you might be here today going, I don't even know how I got here or why I'm here, but I am like this close to saying, Lord, I don't think you're really the Lord that I keep hearing you to be. Let me just encourage you to say, Lord, I, will, I need your grace and your power to this day, just this day, live for you, this day to trust you, this day to believe in you. You have to pray that prayer. Please don't worry about tomorrow. Because some of you are thinking, I've got this situation, I don't see it changing. Some of you are in a situation that may not change, an illness that you've, just, you've been having to live with for a while. It is in the chronic category or a relationship that is broken, was broken. You're, still, you're just in this place of grief. How are you going to get through that? You're going to let the Lord sustain you. As you reach out and just say, Lord, I need your bread for today. Give us this day our daily bread. That's not just a, 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 a prayer for physical food. That's for everything that we need spiritually, to be able to walk in faith with him. Don't worry about tomorrow. You may not see tomorrow. Worry about today. If he gives you tomorrow, he'll give you exactly what you need to get through tomorrow. He is the sustainer. He is the one who loves you. He's the one that will help you get through it. This is, Paul, this is why Paul says at the end of 8, of chapter 8 of Romans, beginning verse 35, he said, with that in mind, who will separate us from Christ's love? It doesn't matter what is coming against you. What matters is, do you know the love of Christ and are you hanging on to it? So he says, what can separate us? He asks a rhetorical question. And then he actually gives an autobiographical example. He says, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, shall these things separate us? And you could go look at the life of Paul and see that he experienced every one of these things. But then he says, and then he's talking about his ministry. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. Now, that's kind of an interesting job description. Who aspires to that? Okay, that's a little gut check. But Paul aspired to that, to be able to be God's instrument of reconciliation, to be his image bearer of restoration, just as Jesus bears the image of the invisible God. We bear the image of Christ. Paul bears the image of a sacrificial, loving Savior in his ministry. And Paul says, we face death all day long. We are considered sheep to be slaughtered. But then he says, verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Really? You're shipwrecked? You're beaten? You're threatened with life? There's death threats against you? All these things? You and, and you're you know, spending nights in the deep, you're going through storms, you're going through all this persecution, and you think you're a conqueror? You, you think you're the guy, you're the winner, you're the victor, you're the guy with the belt, that's you? Paul says, that's me. Why does he say that? Good question. Why does he say that? He says, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He says earlier, I am convinced that death nor life nor angels or demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any of these things will separate us from the love of Christ. Why is he a conqueror? Because the love of Christ holds him, binds him, sustains him, motivates him, compels him, and nothing in creation, nothing in creation 
no enemy, no level of hatred, no level of evil, because all this is still in the created realm, none of that will come against the sovereign creator. That's Paul's hope. That's why he shares this with us. And that's what we need to hang on to and embrace if we're to be his image bearers. Paul's exalting Christ to the Colossian church. He is saying, Jesus just doesn't fit into some big puzzle of your life kind of over here. He's a big piece. You got these other little pieces. No, he made the whole puzzle. He made everything about you. He has a plan and a hope in your future. Your highest aspiration is to reflect him in this life. And you can only do that if you're hanging on to him and showing that you love him and receiving his love and his sustaining grace. What more could you want in this life is what Paul is essentially saying to the Colossians. And as I did last week, let me end with a few questions just for your thoughts, for your thinking in the days ahead. Based on what Paul was sharing in the Colossians, will you see and live with Jesus as the complete, almighty, all-powerful God? Will you see him that way? Will you overcome the temptation to diminish Christ in your life? to reduce him, to make him less than he is, to somehow think that you as the pot are commanding the potter about how you want to be made? Will you see that the highest calling that God has for your life is that you are conformed to the image of his son Jesus, that you would be made more and more like him, and that if you aspire to that, you must be reconciled, you must know his redemption, the only way that you, your deepest need, therefore, is to be reconciled to Jesus so that you can live as he intended you to live, glorifying him, experiencing his abiding love and the fulfillment that he has. Man, make up your mind to see Jesus for the sovereign Lord that he truly is. Make up your mind not to diminish him in your life. Make up your mind to reflect him to others and to know that's the highest calling for you. If you would do that, if I would do that, if we would do that together, there's just no telling how God would use us and what this would be like, what our lives would be like, what our church would be like in the days and months ahead. Amen? Amen.